Well, we come to the third sermon in our current series where we are going through the top three sixteens of the Bible. And we're not ranking them as best to worst or worst to best because they're all inspired by God, so we shouldn't do that. But we are just going through in canonical order. So we're starting at the beginning of the Bible, and we're going through. And not every book has a 316, but a bunch of them do. And I went through and picked my top ten, plus one and plus a bonus one at the end. And today, we've, or the last two weeks, we've looked at Genesis 316. We looked at Joel 316 last week. That actually finishes the Old Testament. The rest of our 316 are going to be in the New Testament. And the first one from the New Testament that I'd like us to look at is Luke 3.16. Luke 3.16. So turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 3. And for context, I'm going, to, I'm going to back up, and I am going to read from verse 7 to verse 17. Now, I ask if you'll please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. This is Luke chapter 3. We're going to back up to chapter 3, verse 7, and we're going to read through to verse 17. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Verse 7. He, speaking of John the Baptist, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is God's holy, inspired word for us, his people. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. Father, we do thank you that you've given us the scriptures, that you've given us an infallible word, you've spoken to us, that you sent Jesus 
to be for us the Lamb who was slain to cover all of our sins, the one who purchased for us all the good gifts you have, including the gift of Scripture. And so we thank you for that gift, and we ask that you would bless the reading of this word, and now especially the preaching. Apply it to our hearts, stamp our lives with the truth that we see today, and we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Today on the church calendar, as you know, is Christ the King Sunday. And Christ the King Sunday is the final Sunday of the Christian year. So you guys didn't know, probably, that next Sunday is New Year's, but it is. It's, it's church New Year's, it's Christian New Year's, it's the new year of the liturgical calendar begins next Sunday with the first Sunday of Advent. And Christ the King marks the last Sunday of the previous year and the end of that year as, the, as we give way to a new. Today we remember that Jesus reigns over all and that He will return to reign upon the earth forever. We remind ourselves today that heaven and earth, present and future, belong to Him. This week we stand at the transition point from the previous Christian year to the next. We today are on the cusp of the future, poised to enter a new year. In our passage in Luke chapter 3, the great storyline of the Bible is on the cusp of a new era. The people of God are standing at a transition point from the Old Testament into the new. The future of God's plan, God's people, and God's world is about to arrive on the scene of history. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 3 about the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus the Messiah. As Luke narrates the coming of John, he tells us this is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. This is the coming of John is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 to 5, which Luke quotes for us in verses 4 to 6. Look what he says. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. These beautiful, lyrical, poetic words from Isaiah were told are fulfilled when John the Baptist arrives on the scene. This prophecy is fulfilled by John. He is the one who prepares the way for the arrival of the Lord, the one who brings the salvation of God. John is the last prophet in the long line stretching back to Moses 
and connecting all the way through the Old Testament up to John the Baptist. If you imagine that Moses is the first of the great prophets of Israel, he's the one who leads them out of Egypt in the Exodus. There's Moses. And the next prophet is holding Moses' hand. And then the next prophet is holding his hand. And the next prophet's holding his hand. And all the way down, a link of hands being held all through the Bible, all down through the Old Testament, until finally you arrive at John the Baptist. He's the last one in this line. And the next person who's going to grab John's hand, the next one in line, isn't another prophet or no mere prophet. It's the Messiah himself. That's John's privilege. He's the last one. The last in the line of prophets before the Messiah himself comes on the scene, before Jesus himself arrives. He has the privilege of being called to be the forerunner of Jesus. And Jesus says John's blessing for being in that position means that there's nobody born of woman greater than John. He says that in Matthew 11. No one greater has ever been born than John, he says. What a blessing to be in John's position. The next person to arrive after John is Jesus. So these Old Testament realities that are reaching their apex in John, they're all, it's all about to give way to the New Testament realities that Jesus will bring in. In our verse, Luke 3.16 tells us that the specific point of transition... The specific point of transition has to do with baptism. Look at 3.16. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. There's the point of transition. Old Testament baptism, John's baptism, will give way to Jesus' New Testament baptism. Lots of other things change too. I imagine if we asked you, if you were writing Luke chapter 3, if you were writing Luke 3.16, what would you focus on as the big thing that's about to change? Someone's coming after me. He's mightier than I. I'm not worthy to bend down and untie his shoelaces. He's so much greater than me, so much better and higher than me. I baptize you with water, but when he comes, he's going to... And I wonder what contrast you would draw. I'm just here preaching. He's going to die for your sins, or he's going ri- to rise from the dead, or he's going to heal the blind. He's going to just fill in the blank. How would you describe the transition? Well, lots of answers are correct biblically, but the one Luke chose... To give us the one John chose to say is there's going to be a bigger, better baptism coming when Jesus gets here. So to understand what changes, let's first look at John's baptism and then let's see what changed in Jesus' baptism. That's where we're going this morning. So first, John's baptism. John's baptism in the text has three elements to it. The first element is John's baptism is a cleansing baptism. Look at verse 3. It says, Luke tells us, And he, John the Baptist, 
went into all the region around the Jordan, the Jordan River, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John's baptism is a cleansing baptism. The people are to hear his message, and they're to respond by getting into the water of the Jordan River and getting baptized. And John tells us this is an act of repentance. So for John, repentance isn't the thing you do in your heart, and then you go get baptized. It's a baptism of repentance. So the, the act of getting baptized, of going into the water and receiving John's baptism, is the act of repentance. It's the demonstration on the outside of what you're doing in your heart on the inside. So they're to get in the water and get baptized as their act of repentance. And it says, this is for the forgiveness of sins. So getting in that water and getting baptized and getting wet with the baptism of John, it says it's cleansing. It brings forgiveness of sins. It washes away sin. Receiving this baptism with repentance, after accepting the message of John, it says these waters are cleansing. It washes away sin. Second element of John's baptism is, John's baptism is a preparatory baptism. Look at verse 7. He said, therefore, this is John speaking, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, and then Luke quotes John, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You brood of vipers. He says this to those who came to get baptized. You're a brood of vipers, you're sinners. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? This is a baptism that's about fleeing from the wrath that is about to come. John's baptism is to prepare people for the coming of the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, when God arrives to bring his final judgment upon the earth. He says, get ready. Flee from the wrath to come. Return to the Lord through baptism and flee from the wrath to the forgiveness. And this word repent in Hebrew just means, of course this is written in Greek, but the Hebrew idea means to return. It's to go back. Stop going one way and go back. So you were on your way this way, living for sin, and then repentance says you did a U-turn, and now you're going back this way towards obedience and righteousness. And you do that turning, that's repentance. When you turn away from sin and you turn towards righteousness, turn towards the Lord, that act is repentance. In the text, that means that turning happens by getting in water, getting baptized by John, and the result is sins get washed away, and now you're fleeing the wrath that's going to fall if you keep going that way, and you're fleeing towards the forgiveness that comes if you go back this way. John's baptism is to prepare people for the wrath that's coming. You don't want to be found going in the direction of sin when the Lord comes. You want to be found going the other way. So come and get baptized. Repent and have your sins washed away in the waters. And then in verse 8, he says, bear fruits in keeping with 
repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, you can't just say, Well, I'm, I'm descended from Abraham. I'm in the covenant. I'm Jewish. I belong to the people of God. We're not going to get judged. We're going to get saved. The judgment's for them Gentiles out there. It's for the nations. I'm safe. I don't need to repent. I don't need to listen to your message, John. I'm good. And he's saying, do not begin to comfort yourself with that false assurance that says, well, I belong to Abraham, therefore no repentance needed from me. He says, it doesn't work like that. God's made promises to save his people, but if you won't repent, he can make new people to keep his promises to. He can raise up people for Abraham out of stones that's in this riverbed. He doesn't, he's not bound to save you just because Abraham's your dad, your ancestor. So don't, don't have that false assurance. You have to repent and believe, and who your dad was or who your grandpa was or the faith of grandma doesn't count. You got to have your own repentance. You have to flee from the wrath to come. You have to come into the waters. You have to then bear the fruit of a repentant life. It's not just, a, you know, say you're sorry to God with your fingers crossed behind your back and then go home and live like you've been unchanged. But you have to go home and live the life of repentance that you've embraced. Otherwise, that U turn was never really happened. You never really turned from sin. Let the Lord find you ready for him when he comes. He's trying to prepare the people of Israel for the coming of the Lord. First element of John's baptism, it's cleansing. The second element is it's preparatory. And then the third element is it's demarcating. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, the fruit of repentance, is cut down and thrown into the fire. So this baptism is meant to mark out God's true people in the present as those who will be saved in the future when the Lord comes and the wrath falls. So when the Lord comes back, who's he going to find? He's looking for his people. And John is there to prepare the people for this. The people who have repented, who have accepted baptism and had their sins washed away. Those who have fled from the wrath that is coming, who are bearing the fruits of repentance and who are staying in that life of repentance and holiness and obedience in anticipation of when the wrath comes. It, John's baptism marks out those in the present who will be saved by God in the future. So to summarize, John's baptism was a reenactment. It was a kind of redo of the crossing of the Jordan River in the book of Joshua. If you remember, it wasn't just the Red Sea that was parted when the Israelites left Egypt, but the, when they got to the Promised Land 40 years later, after Moses has died, Joshua is the one that God uses to part the Jordan River. And the Israelites walk through on dry ground into the Promised Land, just like they walked 
They crossed a river to come out of Egypt and on dry land, and they, or they crossed the Red Sea on dry land to go out of Egypt. And then at the end of their journey, they crossed another body of water on dry land to go into the promised land, to bookend the journey. And so this is a kind of reenactment of that where you are fleeing from bondage in Egypt and fleeing the sin that you once lived in by repenting. And you get into the Jordan River and you get forgiven and cleansed and then you come back into the land as God's holy people. Return to the Lord in repentance, cross the Jordan with sins washed away and live as God's holy people in the land as originally intended and stay as holy as you can in anticipation of God's arrival. That is the baptism of John. And as he says in, in Luke 3.16, it is a baptism with water. Luke 3.16 goes on to say that the one who is coming is much greater. And that means his baptism is much greater. So what does Jesus' baptism have that John's doesn't? And the text tells us that Jesus' baptism adds the Holy Spirit to the equation. Jesus is coming to baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. So that in addition to water, you're getting the Holy Spirit as well. Now in the second volume of Luke's work, remember that the book of Luke and the book of Acts are two volumes of the same work by the same author. We separate them in our Bibles with the Gospel of John, so we keep all the Gospels together, but... Luke and Acts were originally two volumes of the same book so that you go straight from Luke into Acts and the story continues. Well, in the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, we're told this. This is Peter preaching a new covenant sermon to the Israelites. And the message is very similar to John's. Acts 2, 38. And Peter said to them, Repent! And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's similar to John's. You repent, you get baptized... Sins cleansed and washed away. What's different? That sounds like John's. The difference is you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit give us in our baptism? Well, just like I had three elements of John's baptism, a baptism of water, after the coming of Christ, the baptism he gives, which includes the Holy Spirit, it also has three elements to it. Baptism of the Holy Spirit with three elements to it. And these are not all here in Luke, but there are other places in the New Testament where it talks about being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so we draw on all of Scripture to inform our doctrine of baptism. So the first element of Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit is adoption. 
adoption. And this actually is hinted at in the passage. Look down in verses 21 and 22. This is where Jesus gets baptized by John. Notice this. It says, Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So notice a couple of things here. Number one, when Jesus got baptized, his sins were not washed away like everybody else's. And there's a good reason for that. He didn't have any. This is why John in other gospels is like, whoa, Jesus, why are you asking me to baptize you? Shouldn't you be dunking me? I'm sorry, we're Presbyterians. Shouldn't you be sprinkling me? Isn't that how this is supposed to work? I'm the sinner in this situation. You should be baptizing me. I need to repent and get you to forgive me of my sins. I need my sins washed away. Jesus says, no, we need to do it this way. And there's a reason for that. God has his purposes. Let's do it the way we need to do it. And so Jesus submits to the baptism of John. And when he gets baptized, none of Jesus' sins get washed away because he doesn't have any. Instead, Jesus is the first one to get baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Father pours out the Holy Spirit on Jesus. And when the Spirit lands on Jesus in this odd physical form, it says, like a dove. The Spirit just sort of, I don't, I don't know, it just kind of hovered and just, I don't know what people like physically saw. If it was like literally it looked like a dove, feathers and all. But something mysterious happened where the people see the Spirit just comes down on Jesus. And there's a voice that tells Jesus, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is the announcement to Jesus in the presence of all that he is my son. Jesus is the son of God by nature. He's always been God's son. He didn't become God's son. Jesus wasn't being adopted here. This was a declaration to to everybody else of revelation. This is my son. Jesus, you are my son. Everybody get the message? He's my son, my dearly beloved son, and with him I'm well pleased. It's a declaration of who Jesus really is. He's God's son. But now when we receive the Holy Spirit, when we get the baptism of the Spirit, it tells us that we also are God's son or daughter. Not by nature. You haven't been God's son or daughter for eternity. But you are a child of God By grace. And that grace we call adoption. God has named you in your baptism. He puts his name upon you. He puts the family name upon you. Your baptism is an adoption ceremony. Where you are called, named, and claimed by the Father to belong to him. To be a part of the family of God. And in Romans 8.15, Paul calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of adoption who's been given to us. Not a spirit of fear and slavery, but a spirit that makes us children of God by which we cry out to him, Abba, Father. So that you are a child of God from the inside out. Your soul is adopted. Your body is adopted. The Holy Spirit fills you and claims you and all of you belongs to God. 
top to bottom and inside out, you are his. That's the first element. The, whole, the baptism of the Holy Spirit makes us a child of God by grace so that you get to share in the Son's relationship to the Father. That infinite, perfect relationship of the Father and the Son from eternity inside the Trinity, you get adopted in and invited in to share by grace a taste of that fellowship with the Father so that He's really your Father and Christ is truly your brother and you are in a real family, the family of God. John's baptism didn't do that. Jesus' baptism is greater. It adopts us into God's family. Second element, first is adoption. Number two is connection. Connection, not just adoption into God's family, but connection, union into the body of Christ. For this, we have to move outside of Luke, and we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, in verses 12 and 13. This is what Paul says. He says, just, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are still one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The baptism of the Spirit is a baptism by the Spirit into the body of Christ. So it's not just, your baptism wasn't just an adoption ceremony where God officially makes you a member of the family with the same last name and all the rights and privileges and blessings of being a full member of the house. But it was also this kind of wild, not amputation, what's the other one? Grafting something in. Where now, the body of Christ gets a new member stuck onto it. A new piece of the body, a new piece of the puzzle comes into place. Where you were taken from the world, out of an unholy world, and you've been planted into the body of Christ. And you are fully connected, a living member of a body. That means the blood courses through your veins. That means the nerves are alive and can feel. It means you are part of this whole body. Jesus is one Christ, but his body is made up of so many members, Paul says. And you are plugged into that body. And so if you're in the same body, you share the same spirit. James tells us the body without the breath is a corpse. Usually it's translated, the body without the spirit is dead. And if you're a part of the body of Christ, the same spirit that animates the other parts of the body animates you as well. Gives you life. You are plugged into the body of Christ. You are filled with the same Holy Spirit, joined into the body, knit together with Christ, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, one spirit with him. And one spirit with one another. Because the same body and the same spirit unites you to one another. 
You are connected to a family in your adoption and connected to a father and a brother. And here you are connected to a body. You are connected to a spirit. You are plugged in. You are one family and one body in Christ, filled with the same Holy Spirit. John's baptism couldn't do that. It didn't plug you into Christ, but this does. The Holy Spirit, Christ's baptism is mightier. First element is adoption. Second element is connection. Now the third, power. You get adopted into God's family. You get connected to the body of Christ. And you get power. This is also found outside of our text, but it's in the book of Acts. If you look in Acts chapter 1, verses 5 and 8, Luke tells us in his second volume, the book of Acts, He says to his disciples, this is after his resurrection, this is in those 40 days before he ascends to heaven, where he's appearing to the disciples and teaching them about the kingdom. And he says in verse 5, he says, well, let's back up to verse 4. He says, and while staying with them, while Jesus is staying with the apostles, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Jesus says, stay put in Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then in verse 8 it says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of of the earth. When you get the Holy Spirit, you get what the apostles got at Pentecost. You get power. Power to live like Christ. Power to be His witness. Power to have gifts and blessings and graces to give and to use and to share. You are empowered to be His witness and empowered to be in His service. The Holy Spirit energizes our spiritual lives so that wherever we go, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, or the other end of this earth, you have the same Holy Spirit and His power is within you. You are empowered for witness. You are empowered for service. You are empowered for good works. You are empowered with His gifts to love and serve your neighbor. Baptism is a delivery system that brings the Holy Spirit and all His New Covenant, New Testament gifts. Sins washed away, adopted into God's family, connected to the body of Christ, filled with power to go and be the people of God that we're called to be. But if you notice something, if you're paying close attention to Luke 3.16, you'll notice there's something we left out. So what does Luke 3.16 say? I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. When the Lord comes, he will also baptize 
with fire. He does so in a very limited way at Pentecost. Remember when the Spirit comes down upon the 120 in the upper room in Acts chapter 2? It said it looks like tongues of fire resting on the head of each person. That's a kind of baptism with fire, you might say. Sort of a reenactment of the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that traveled with the Israelites in the Old Testament. Maybe an echo of that. But that in Luke 3 isn't really what he's talking about. He will come and baptize with fire, meaning Jesus is the one who's coming to pour out that wrath that is to come. The wrath that verse 7 said to flee from when the Lord arrives. You can see that in the context. Look at the very next verse, verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to sweep the floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. A fire that just keeps burning and devouring and cannot be put out. His wheat, his people, the ones who are prepared for him to come, he takes into the barn, they're safe, and the rest he compares to chaff, and he's there with his broom, his winnowing fork, and he's threshing, and he's sweeping, and the wind carries them away from the wheat, and then the chaff that's left over is gathered and burnt with unquenchable fire. At Jesus' first coming, he comes to baptize with the Holy Spirit. But at his second coming, he comes to baptize the world with fire, with the judgment. He will pour out that wrath from verse 7, the wrath that is to come. Now notice this, that Jesus' baptism, even though it's greater and has greater blessings, it's still the same shape as John's baptism. See, in John's baptism, you're supposed to repent or return to the Lord. You're supposed to get baptized and get your sins washed away. You're supposed to then live as God's holy people and bear the fruit of repentance and stay as holy as you can in anticipation of the Lord's coming. And this is the same in shape. The king is coming. It's Christ the King Sunday. And the one who lives and reigns on that throne at God's right hand will not stay there forever. But he will come again. And he will reign upon the earth. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And when he comes, the judgment falls. And who are the people who will be the wheat in the barn and not the chaff that goes into the fire? Who's that going to be? It's going to be the people who are marked out as his own. The people who have the Holy Spirit, who have been baptized, adopted, connected, and filled with the Spirit. The people who are living for him are the ones who will be the wheat that are gathered into the barn, not the chaff. The power of John's baptism was very temporary. Get ready because Jesus is about to show up. But the power of Jesus' baptism doesn't just take you out of an unholy world and make you holy. Jesus' baptism takes you out of an unholy world, makes you holy, gives you the Holy Spirit, and it keeps you holy in an unholy world. And it keeps us and protects us and guards us. In Ephesians 1, it's called the seal of redemption, the guarantee that your redemption is coming. 
So think of your baptism as a big stamp. If you're a package headed to heaven, the stamp that guarantees you get there is baptism. You are marked out as God's people. And you have the down payment, the guarantee of your redemption. You are marked and sealed. As the ones who are sealed live in the power of the Spirit, Paul says. Walk in the Spirit and you will not satisfy the desires of the flesh. So Christian, in your walk with the Lord, look to your baptism. Think about your baptism. If you were baptized as an adult and you can remember it, great. But if you were baptized as a child, it still counts and it still means the same thing. Look back to your baptism and think, I have been adopted. How do I know I'm a child of God? I'm baptized. How do I know that I'm plugged into the body of Christ? Well, I've been baptized. How do I know that I have the power of the Spirit? Well, I've been baptized, haven't I? That's the mark, the pledge, that the Holy Spirit is yours and these gifts are yours. But of course, if all you have is the baptism, but you're a you have no faith and no repentance and you're not living for the Lord, then those things are empty and hollow. And you need to repent. Don't begin to say, well, we have Abraham as our father or whatever the Christian equivalent is for you. You have to appropriate these things by faith. All this stuff is yours in baptism. It's all yours. It's your inheritance. It's in your name. When the way you claim your inheritance is, you repent and believe the gospel. None of this stuff works all automatically without faith. Cling to the promise of your baptism, Christian, because it's a gospel ordinance. It's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Look to your baptism and believe the promises there that your sins are washed away, that you are united to Christ, that the Holy Spirit is yours, that you have the power to walk in the Spirit and to be ready for the Lord's return. To live in anticipation, knowing that the King is coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of baptism. We thank you that the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us. And I pray that all of us would have the faith and repentance to claim our inheritance that is ours for the taking. We want to be your people. Help us to look to that baptism and remember that it is greater than anything in the Old Testament, greater than John, because it's part of a new and greater covenant with better promises, promises that are guaranteed to us in Christ. And I pray that you would strengthen our faith and let us look to that baptism and remember what it means that we are adopted as your child. You are our father, Christ is our brother, and the Holy Spirit lives within us that we are plugged into your body and we belong to the people of God. We have all the gifts and blessings and privileges and graces that come with it and that we have your power to overcome sin, to be a bold witness, to have courage and to stand firm and to vanquish the enemy and to march forward nobly unto Zion, to bear up under the severest test that comes. We have the power only because of your gift in the Holy Spirit. And baptism is that mark that stamps us out as those who are on the way to glory. Help us to live in those realities and to claim them by faith and to bear the fruits of repentance that we might be found doing your will, walking in the spirit, not the flesh, when our King 
comes again. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.